This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ongwaley. And I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Shah Mahmoud Hanifi, a professor of history at James Madison University, where he teaches courses on the Middle East and South Asia. Dr. Hanifi's publications have addressed subjects including colonial political economy and intellectual history, the Pashto language, photography, cartography, animal and environmental studies, and Orientalism in Afghanistan. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Shah Mahmoud Hanifi, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Much of what we hear about Afghanistan now focuses on war and conflict. I wonder if you can start by giving us a deeper history of Afghanistan in order to better understand the present moment. Certainly, Kara, and thank you very much for the chance to have a conversation about this issue with you. And I think the focus on war and conflict is misleading. Um, for really missing a lot of cultural production, um, deep historical cultural production, and I can say a few words about that. But what um, often tends to happen in focusing on war and conflict only is a sense that all Afghans are kind of always at war anyway, and that there is this chance to kind of clean up that indigenous warfare problem by some larger scale of warfare. So it's really kind of a circular limiting frame of reference. Um, and there's we often hear also about that Afghans tend to kind of uh, fight amongst themselves all the time until there's a foreign invader, then they somehow unify mm. against the foreign invader. And again, that's quite misleading, even from recent events with the interpreters, where there's thousands of local allies that are doing the exact opposite of fighting against the Americans. They're actually working with the Americans. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, um, I think, uh, not just circular, but some uh, really misleading and limiting um, ways that war has been treated. Even the word war, sometimes I wonder if it applies in the ordinary sense of the word war. And in sort of recent history, we see, of course, the American war. And let's just think through that. And um, the conquest of Kabul recently was bloodless. The Mm -hmm. Taliban sort of surge was relatively bloodless. The American war sort of ended very quickly It wasn't 20 years. Now, if we say that particular localized conflicts and skirmishes make war, then perhaps we can say that there's been 20 years of war. But the point I'm trying to make is that recently there's been sort of um, short bursts of violence and then considerable periods of calm. And when we take all the regions together, it's certainly not constant warfare. And the sort of idea that the Afghans are always fighting the invaders in the American case, if there were firefights and sort of on the ground skirmishes, they ended so quickly because of American air power, which stopped 
that singular conflict really uh, effectively, quite consistently. So, you know, and if we go back through the Soviet period, we can say this, certainly there are elements that look like warfare and that at the same time, their period was concentrated, their battles were concentrated in the East. There were certainly battles and in the West, but it wasn't an all out war all around the country for 10 years. Back through the British period, these become even less like war, particularly the third war of independence in 1919, that was really very low levels of casualties, kind of border skirmishes, one British airplane run, and it's over. So it's like not a big series of ongoing battles by everyone involved. And so now what if we leave war aside and the problems with war, um, that just misses the cultural production element. And mm. the space that we call Afghanistan has been so remarkably contributive to a lot of global cultural processes. And going um, really to the beginning, which is um, sort of the Neolithic agricultural revolution era, Afghanistan is known for having the first um, excavated piece of art on a rock that's a human face. So some people say that the first artistic expression of the human face found in Afghanistan of 7,000 BC, Zoroastrianism mm -hmm. as a religion has a prophet. Zoroaster, many people say he's from Balkh in Northern Afghanistan and his dates of life are still quite, uh, you know, uh, ambiguous and contested, but deep BC centuries, millennia BC, the sophisticated agricultural technology of underground irrigation channels develops in this region of the world thousands of years ago and gets exported around the world. The Persian language takes its modern form around 1000 AD in Eastern Afghanistan with Ferdowsi, the Persian poet, writing Persian in the Arabic script, which brought a whole new layer and era of the Persian language that flourished under Islam using the Persian script that's born in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, and again, some people uh, say and others contest the claim that one of the first autobiographies in terms of a genre of literature was produced by the Emperor Babur, the founder of the Mughal Empire, who is buried in Kabul, loved Kabul, and wrote about its gardens and uh, really wildlife, forests, flowers. Um, and that Babur Nama is a really remarkable piece of literature. And so, in a lot of different ways, Afghanistan has been a really culturally productive uh, region. Do you have a sense of why we see, at least in this, in the last four decades or so, this persistent narrative and focus on conflict? Well, that is a imperial frame of reference. And if mm -hmm. we, we have to package now the Soviets and the Americans as imperial powers in some sense, and these are, Im imperialism involves a considerable amount of information management. There's a lot of censorship and propaganda and 
framing things takes on a real political tint. And again, that sense that local conflict can be solved by some external greater level of force. And so, um, which is, it's rhetoric that's belied by the facts. So as you've touched upon, Afghanistan definitely has a rich history of self-determination and serving as an international crossroads of cultural, economic, and political activity. It has also been the target of imperialism, attempted colonization, and intervention, particularly in the last hundred years. Can you share more about Afghanistan's political development and how it is intersected with its positioning within international systems? Surely, once again, thanks for such a, uh, an important and large question. So maybe the first thing to do is situate Afghanistan in this wider regional, deeper kind of cultural history, and then the modern political kind of dynamics. And in broad measure, Afghanistan is at the crossroads of three major cultural traditions. The first is Iran, and this is primarily the Persian language. Also, Islam comes from the West, but um, Persian cultural influence is very profoundly relevant for Afghanistan, modern Afghanistan. Central Asia also offers another set of uh, cultural technologies, particularly the horse, historically has had a huge role in imperial developments in Eurasia and um, northern Afghanistan and the area north of the Amu Darya or Oxus River is known as ecologically the steppe zone, which is where horses pasture and where great empires like, however you want to say great in quotes perhaps, Genghis Khan and the Mongols and other um, horse-based empires have a um, a home in Central Asia and a contribution to Afghanistan. But it's deeper than just the horse because of course there are Central Asian Turkic populations that have a hugely important role in Afghanistan, Uzbek and other communities that have a cultural homeland, so to speak, in Central Asia, so important. Some say Afghanistan's uh, national food, if there is such a thing, is a dumpling-like item known as mantu, which is a Central Asian sort of uh, culinary uh, tradition that's been nationalized. And then South Asia would be the third cultural area. And here um, there is a deep history of religious connections, and this includes both Hinduism and Buddhism. And of course, the Buddhas of central Afghanistan carved into the side of the mountains that were blown up before, uh, you know, by the Taliban. It was actually Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban, uh, prior to World War, excuse me, the 9-11, are a reflection of South Asian influences and East Asian connections to East Asia as well. And then really South Asia, it's British colonialism that has a really important determining influence, but the history of Afghanistan exporting its agricultural and animal hides and meats to South Asia. There's been really important market connections that predate the British who transformed those commercial relationships. Now, politically, the thing that we call Afghanistan emerged as an empire in the 18th century and 
this is a time when the Safavid Empire in Iran is ex in decline and then exterminated by an Afghan invasion from Kandahar. And the Mughal Empire is also kind of fragmenting in a way that allowed the British to begin to more or less nibble at the perimeter of the British Empire, uh, the Mughal Empire in South Asia before overtaking the Mughal Empire and ruling. So, so the Afghan Empire emerges in a world of empires, really, in the 18th century with a capital city in Kandahar. And um, the founder is named Ahmad Shah Abdali, who then changes his name to Durrani. And now we can start to see some identity politics in the early state formation period here. But it's a mobile empire with a capital city in Kandahar. And the capital gets moved to Kabul when Ahmad Shah dies and his son Timur Shah becomes the ruler of this entity. And this is now the late 18th century, and by the early 19th century, the British are starting to get involved through diplomatic connections and commercial connections, which then lead to the first Afghan war, Anglo-Afghan war, which is 1839 to 42. And this is the one where the British troops were decimated. And that makes the sort of legendary resistance of Afghans to empire really kind of anchored there. Uh, but that's also a complex story because there's a lot more survivors than just one. And it's not as if um, the defeat of the British in that conflict eliminated their influence after the war. In fact, they're quite instrumental in bringing the ruler who was displaced back to power at the end of the war. So the second uh, Afghan war with the British is 1878 to 1880. And this ends with the appointment of a ruler named Abdul Rahman, who becomes the British appointed ruler of Kabul. And this is in 1880. And the reason for his appointment was to avoid the same kind of um, disaster, as it were, for British troops as the first war. And there's some, a uh, lot of other diplomatic communications dealing with the Russians that are involved here, as well as the First War. But the appointment of Abdurrahman in 1880 begins what is essentially a structural relationship with the British Empire in India that was not a uniform political space. The British ruled some areas directly, and they left some areas in the hands of local princes. And these are called princely states. And there was a lot of them in the British Empire. I think 574 from the size literally of the quad here at JMU to like the size of Virginia, let's say, in terms of Kashmir being a princely state. These are small to large entities. And Afghanistan kind of gets treated as a princely state in the sense that there's a great deal of British influence through subsidies. The, the British begin to subsidize Abdurrahman in ways that ultimately generate dependencies on those subsidies. And this is now the structural relationship that Afghanistan assumes to the outside world with a great deal of subsidization. And essentially, the third Afghan war in 1919 gives Afghanistan its independence from British India. But this is also a bit misleading because 
The British stay extremely involved in Afghanistan, in fact, build the biggest embassy in Asia there in the 1920s. And the Afghan rulers in 1919, this is King Amanullah and his sort of famous wife, Queen Soraya, the first woman to kind of publicly devail, very important period, the 1920s. But that opens up Afghanistan to all kinds of international actors, including the French and the Germans, most importantly. And uh, though, again, structurally, Afghanistan now is open up, not just to the British, but to a range of international powers, which affects the structure of the state even today with so many international powers uh, involved. And then of course, the Cold War is really important for Afghanistan's relationship to the United States when the United States gets heavily involved in irrigation, large scale industrial damming of the Helmand River Valley in the south near Kandahar. And this is an extensive multi-decade long US aid and uh, US corporate enterprise. It generates a lot of technical and educational exchange between Afghanistan and the United States. And it's a really large scale project. Then of course, the Soviet invasion in 1979 is predicated on a revolution in 1978 um, that brings a socialist regime to power. And it's sort of in the context of international socialism that the Soviets have an ideological, um, you know, uh, investment in Afghanistan that leads to its invasion. And the critical thing beginning in 1979 is the United States covert funding of the Afghan Mujahideen that leads to a lot of um, subsequent uh, connections to the Taliban today. So that's kind of a general political history coming up, up more or less to 9-11. I, I wonder if there's, if, if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about the tensions that might emerge from, you know, it is a rather large nation state <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and with, with different geographical influences and, and different external influences impacting sort of the city state of Kandahar versus some of the other regions of the country. And I wonder if, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the internal dynamics and tensions in, in political development as well, as there are these um, external <laughs> forces um, under imperialism and colonialism that try to establish a more centralized state versus other forms of governance. Sure. And even the economic basis of the place called Afghanistan has a historical connectivity to these other mm -hmm. regions that we addressed in broad measure earlier. And what the modern nation state and state form of Afghanistan does is really transform those patterns of mobility and those connections. And so the um, really very much colonial create colonially created boundaries um, halt the traditional economic and other cultural connections between what is in Afghanistan, the people there and its various regions to surrounding 
regions in, in dramatic ways. And this is all done in a context where Kabul is emerging kind of um, not artificially, but with external connections to becoming this thing called a capital city, which is a kind of new role, really, for Kabul. It's, it had been, of course, a center of, of various sorts, but not really the capital of an empire per se. Mm. So this is a big change not just for Kabul, but Kabul's traditional relationships to other surrounding markets and the hinterlands between these spaces that have now a very different set of economic limitations, not being able, it's a primarily agricultural space. And so surplus production in the form of Historically, fruits and nuts are really, really very important, but also animals, hides and, and meat. And those markets were in many ways in South Asia. And that's what the British transformed. So in the creation of the boundaries of Afghanistan, the economics of the space get transformed and Kabul gets politically um, kind of elevated mm -hmm. through external support. And, and that has just tremendous, and this is all kind of routed through the sense that there's now a, a, a territorial state with a capital city and then the kind of uh, post facto nationalist ideology sort of trying to craft a national identity out of this really deep history and the deep cultural presence, but so dramatically recently transformed by colonialism. Mm -hmm. And I think the internal political dynamics around nationalism were so kind of awkward and clunky that it left no one happy. And this leads to a lot of the lack of, you know, um, confidence in a supra local unity of any sort mm -hmm. when the, uh, the state is weak and the national idea is not really kind of germinated, um, it, it makes for a, a less than stable environment. You mentioned Queen Soraya and and sort of the, you know, she was sort of um, Western media kind of grabbed onto her in the 1920s um, and, and really starts to perpetuate a certain narrative about women in Afghanistan then, and you've written about the self-aggrandizing and unsustainable idea that Afghan women, Afghan women need Western, um, and in particular American assistance to be quote unquote liberated from various forms of oppression. Um, I wonder if you can speak to the politicized and artificially gendered view of Afghanistan and where it came from and how we should under better understand um, Afghan women both now, but also over time. I think the most important thing is to remember that imperialism and colonialism have always had a really high gendered dimension and profile in previous imperial eras and other colonial contexts. There's a lot of attention to women and indeed the British Empire is a good example, particularly in India, of how 
maybe inconsistent and contradictory some of the impulses are towards women. So in early British colonialism, there's an aggressive um, uh, engagement with local Indian women by single, basically, representatives of empire who have excess money. And this is a real um, engagement of the, of the sexual market, essentially, in these urban environments, especially where British officers would have what would resemble kind of a harem of a variety of women, some indeed married, other in concubinage kind of and uh, labor slave relationships. And it's a very complex gendered engagement for early British colonies. At the same time, in the same context, rather, later the, the British start legislating against the form of dress known as the sari in India for showing too much skin. And this is in response to a lot of evangelical sentiments um, about what a woman should look like and should not be bare or naked. And at the same time, there's a huge growth in the British Empire and the, again, it's prostitution. Uh, and it's a global phenomenon. The British are, you know, the imperial context has a lot of different kinds of uh, relation issues involving women. And so in Afghanistan, we have to look at some of these uh, variations. There's certainly not one story. There is no single Afghan woman that's the you know, prototype for all other Afghan women. There's a great deal of diversity here. And so in general, the um, kind of characterization you referenced is found in other imperial contexts, a kind of savior complex. And the politics and the cultural politics of white Christian women saving brown Muslim women from brown Muslim men, it is a part of perhaps Islamophobia. And this is another problem of, of empire that's highly racialized as well as gendered. So um, the other uh, historical reality is that a lot of the um, activities and uh, institutions and investment in women in Afghanistan was in urban environments, particularly Kabul, which had a very um, uh, just remarkable growth of capital investment and uh, just I think the city some accounts are that in 2001 it was just short of 500,000 people mm. and some say now it's 5 million 500,000 to 5 million and it's in that space where a lot of these gendered activity where there is training of women judges women parliamentarians and this sort of uh, really found in Kabul, found in connection to the core of the international presence in a lot of international um, institutions that are tied to external funding, once again, a lot of NGOs. And so now it's not all Afghan women, it's largely urban women. It's not just urban women, it's urban women who have a little bit of English and it's a bilingual. And so now this is, it's a class issue. It's kind of urban elites. It's not all women, it's elites who are um, kind of uh, liberated in the sense of the types of clothing or 
cosmetics and the hair salon business, the aesthetics, the kind of commoditization of gender and womanhood is found in Caldwell uniquely in so far as I can tell. And I'm, I know there are examples of this in other cities, but the point in Caldwell is really unique. And um, it's clearly a kind of bubble economy situation as well here. Girls' schools also get a lot of attention, um, but here we start to see some um, uh, uh, clearly politicized. It's very hard not to look at it. If you Googled images of Afghanistan, I, you would see girls' schools, I'm sure. It's just such a prominent visual of a uh, visual reference to liberation or something. Now, these girls' schools also became very, very uh, kind of big business for all kinds of donors, corporate and private. And it turns out to be the center of a lot of scandals and fraud and the girls' school sort of uh, funding that wasn't actually, there's a lot of documented corruption, so to speak, around girls' schools. And, you know, uh, I recently referenced in a, uh, another conversation, the Afghan girls soccer team who in that conversation mm -hmm. had just made its way out of Afghanistan to Australia mm -hmm. through the agency of kind of activists. I think it was a woman's soccer coach in Texas who kind of organized things to get the Afghan girls soccer team um, out of Taliban-controlled Afghanistan to Australia, where they can apparently continue to play soccer. Now, that's a nice story, but the worst, the not-so-nice part of the story of this is that the Afghan girls soccer team was subjected to systematic sort of sexual abuse by Afghan soccer officials, and it's an international scandal. UEFA's involved. And the point is, in these new international spaces, these new international imperial spaces, they're not immune from the same kinds of things we saw in America, the kind of Me Too moments. It's like the same kinds of problems of power inequities and whether it's anonymity or really kind of uh, so social intimacy. Um, it, it's not always a very rosy picture for the liberated women in Afghanistan. And this also goes um, very much so, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, at universities where advancement, it, 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 there's a lot of difficulties that women still face in the context of a liberated Kabul environment. So um, I think it's just important to keep track of the, um, the competing narratives around gender. It's not a single solitary story. We've kind of already touched on this topic um, in respect to how women are portrayed in the media. But I wonder if you could speak to what life is like in modern Afghanistan and how maybe it differs from the mainstream narrative that we might encounter in the media. Sure. Well, again, um, I, I can't speak with firsthand information about any location. I'm sharing the same kind of information I think you are. I have local sources of information, probably that you don't have, but they're still patchy and then not full. I don't have a full view. Now, what's important is that most of what we have seen in the recent period is about Kabul. But we also know Afghanistan is a very rural place. And we also know that it's in the rural zone 
where there's been the warfare associated with the American occupation. And this warfare involves, it's really a very preponderantly aerial war that involves a lot of drone bombing, that a lot involves a lot of night raids, involves a lot of abductions, assassinations, killing, and really there's a, there's a system of black site prisons and renditions and it's a, it's a, it's such a problem that the International Criminal Court has basically indicted the United States and others for crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. So if we think beyond Kabul, where the media portrays difficulties for previously liberated Afghan women under the regime of the Taliban, there's a good chance that Afghan women in the rural zone feel liberated from an air war. And it's really important to recognize that that, um, I think in general, nobody would want uh, foreign troops on their, or in their air or on their soil. And, you know, perhaps um, at least in the rural zone, there can be not just a liberation for women, but a liberation for Afghan people in a sense that's different than the gendered form of liberation we just discussed. And this is, again, um, I've, I've mentioned urban and rural distinctions here now a couple of times. And that's not to say that there aren't connections between the urban and rural zone. And the growth of Kabul is actually a drain of rural people. Kabul doesn't grow just by natural reproduction. There is internal immigration to Kabul, mm. which is in pursuit of basically capital and employment opportunities tied to a, a, a non-local economy, let's say. And perhaps with the lack of warfare and perhaps, perhaps there'll be a ruralization that could sort of free up Kabul and perhaps help recover a rural economy. And the main thing though, in both areas, urban and rural, the most important uh, thing that I'd like to mention for, for the audience is the environmental consequences of warfare and the environmental consequences of warfare all around the world and military bases all around the world. And we don't have to look far, we can look in the Chesapeake Bay for you know, chloral, floral, carbons, and forever chemicals that are, you know, killing that water. And Afghanistan is a particularly uh, uh, vulnerable place, both because of its so varied ecologies, which are then mm. doubly impacted by climate change when all ecologies are subjected to floods and droughts. And there's been famine really re repeated years of famine through these last 20 years. And so what I'm most concerned about is the munitions that have been used in the air war, beginning with the bombing of irrigation canals, those ancient irrigation canals I mentioned became places of refuge from the aerial war, which then got bombed. These bombs, the American armaments carry heavy doses of depleted uranium that once it's in the groundwater is just devastating. And it's not just in Helmand. When we look at Tora Bora chasing bin Laden, that is just a relentless bombing of mountain. And then that water gets into the valleys. And so we have a really huge problem 
with genetic mutations among humans and animals in Eastern Afghanistan that nobody talks about because it censored and politicized information. But as the American taxpayers paid for this, they need to be aware of the environmental consequences of warfare. And it's not just depleted uranium in the water, it is the presence of bases. At one time, there were hundreds of military bases and these military bases have burn pits and burn pits burn everything from just clothing to bottles to cans to even equipment and those carcinogens are in the air they're then in the climate ultimately this affects the soil and we've got both underground water pollution overground soil pollution and then the air pollution Kabul is one of the most polluted cities on earth from military vehicles. Two-stroke diesel engines have rendered Kabul. It's a place with some, ex first of all, Kabul is running out of water. Everyone knows it. Afghanistan is running out of water. It's, it's a real problem. And e electric pumps are a particular uh, problem, oversaturation of overuse of aqueducts. But the pollution in Kabul, the air pollution, is, is just devastating for the physical health of the people there. And so um, that's my greatest um, concern about the ordinary uh, daily life every day. It's the slow violence, slow environmental uh, violence of warfare that's at stake here. And generational, intergenerational. Um, I know, for example, in the Marshall Islands, you know, the that you know women there are still having jellyfish babies from the united states nuclear weapons testing during the cold war there Thank um you. and yeah. you know even it, and, and it's we we seem to think that we can do this in populations that are already the most vulnerable um it's a it's a really substantive problem for the long-term habitability of that ancient space that is a crime against humanity in principle here. And, you know, I don't know if it's easy to clean, you don't easily extract these things. And so we have a real, uh, a real problem no, to, we, to be accountable for as U.S. taxpayers. You know, as U.S. taxpayers, we are accountable. As a global community, we are we are also accountable. You've you've spoken throughout um, the time here just about the globalization of the economy, the institutional structures that have come in um, and been quite extractive. How should we reimagine, and how should the global community, and and perhaps more specifically the United States, reimagine its relationship with Afghanistan? De demilitarize and environmentalize your thinking. Um, and I think it's important uh, to recognize that it's really not just the United States that have been, there's mineral extraction. The Chinese have a huge copper mine that is an environmental catastrophe and an archeological catastrophe. So there's real problems with mining, global mining, uh, for example, when you say extraction generally. Um, but I, I think to, to reimagine Afghanistan is to reimagine its relations among itself and its surroundings. And there's been um, 
a, a, a sort of jump in scale, so to speak, that is connecting things in Kabul to things in Washington, D.C. That's sort of jumping around the world. I think the most viable things are the most locally integrated. And so the kinds of connections that emerge between Afghanistan and its neighbors will be really important here. And certainly China seems posed, poised rather to begin to exert more commercial leverage. And the, you know, um, that's potentially has some positive dividends, but again, the kinds of, um, uh, you know, orientations of the Belt Road Initiative, for example, aren't all designed to benefit just Afghanistan. It's a larger, you know, kind of Chinese imperial geography in that sense. So Pakistan still remains, I would say, among Afghans, the major problem because of its sort of strategic depth policies in supporting uh, in many ways. The Taliban are not one uniform group, like Afghan women are not one uniform group, but one faction of the Taliban is clearly very uh, historically and politically connected to Pakistan. And that relationship emerged with the United States sort of midwifing that birth of the relationship between the Mujahideen and the Pakistani state. So if the United States can exert leverage over it may not be a client, but it's certainly a subordinate ally of the United States uh, with Pakistan to kind of demilitarize uh, and depressurize its its political uh, uh, sort of self-perceived imperatives towards Afghanistan. That could be potential. Iran it still remains the largest question mark. To, and the subject of Iran really has to be uh, uh, retrospectively inserted into our global discussion of the Soviet invasion and the American response, which is largely conditioned or in important ways conditioned by the Iranian revolution. And which it still leaves a sort of problem for the United States in terms of a foreign policy um, issue. And so I think a lot of Afghanistan's future will not just connect, but be tied and in, in substantive ways to what happens in, in Iran. Mm. So I would say Iran and China are probably um, the, the regional actors. Of course, Russia is not a small concern here either. Um, um, but a, a more proximate regionalization of the international dimension rather than, you know, Western European and American interests, there will be a re configuration of external but more uh, regional actors. And hopefully uh, the, if the United States, the United States does not seem um, uh, fully, first of all, it, it isn't fully withdrawn because the legacy of that war still lives on in the soil and groundwater of Afghanistan. So there is not a full withdrawal. And this over the horizon, it, this is a real problem. Um, uh, for the future of the United States, it seems to me, if it, this is the drone is going to be the new technology for foreign policy, we've got a real problem. Um, so hopefully the United States will refrain from these over the horizon uh, attacks, which as we see now, which is 
a couple of weeks later that the Kabul drone attack did not have anything to do with two imminent terrorists and sort of that that's that's a that's a lie and there's a couple recent journalistic books that look at the series of lies that have been told about Afghanistan to justify what appears to be a really uh, a, a military industrial complex that's just making extraordinary profits here. And we know the names of the companies and we know that they, so, um, you know, if the United States can um, exert sort of a less, less militarized leverage in this environment, a more, uh, you know, livelihoods and environmentally centered foreign policy that's based on the ground, not in the air. I think that'll be for the benefit of, uh, you know, humanity uh, broadly, not just Afghanistan. Dr. Hanifi has sort of addressed already the future of Afghanistan. Do you want do you want to say more on that at all? I I I, I certainly can't. I don't I don't think there's much more to add other than um, the. the uh, the exodus, I think, would be the only thing, the recent exodus of something like 120,000 Afghans or something along those lines. Mm. Um, th th that's really important because a lot of them are identified as interpreters and kind of translators. And the history of empire um, is one that that relationship is not as cozy as it appears. And the, the translators typically didn't really love their bosses. It, it's not as if every Afghan translator, they're actually, there's a lot of Afghans see racism in this relationship. It's, it's not as cozy as it appears. And so um, the point is that language is a skill. There are other skills that are important, kind of computer literacy and technocratic skills. A lot of investment in training those people. And if it's them that's leaving, that you know, for whatever reason, that somehow is a loss that is kind of a brain drain of some sort. And I just, you know, there, uh, um, Afghanistan needs Afghans and it doesn't need any, anyone else except Afghans, it seems. Uh, that's not, of course, I'm being a little facetious there, but um, I, I, I do wonder uh, about the continual manipulation of migration patterns here. Mm. So, um, and I think the future will still politicize the Afghan refugee and that kind of thing in ways that um, I think we can be more critical. Dr. Shah Mahmood Hanifi, we asked this question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Two things, very clearly. Number one, limit the executive power mm. for covert operations. Limit the executive power to deploy the CIA around the world. The reason for this is because that we don't know what is happening with covert operations. The increasing budgetary space, the ideological space of covert special operation droning um, is a major, major problem and it is a democratic issue because we pay for that 
and we don't have access to the data. We still don't know how many drones were operating in Afghanistan, but we do know that Afghanistan was an, an experimental theater for drones. We just saw an example where one drone apparently takes out two real targets. That's not the case. It's been 20 years of that's not the case. And these are really, uh, they don't count the innocent victims as a matter of strategic, you know, kind of censorship of data. And so I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned that the nature of warfare, covert warfare involving drones and special operations, and not to mention new kinds of prisons, new kinds of legal manipulations about detentions, about torture um, that Afghanistan is connected with. Um, I, I, I worry greatly about that becoming normative or exported to other contexts. Including even our own, <laughs> depending on the color of your skin. Absolutely. In the States. Um, absolutely. I think it's, it's so important to, if I could just assume yeah. <laughs> that you're talking about sort of transnational alliances between various forms of uh, subjugated peoples, whether it's it's women. And, you know, um, with Afghanistan, we have to remember that this has been capitalism that's been operating on it heavily through corporate profiteering. And that has generated a lot of new wealth. A lot of that wealth has gone to the Gulf and Dubai. It's not in Afghanistan. And it's also generated a huge number of underprivileged kind of poorer classes. And women populate this. This the, the and there's horrific stories again of 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 of, of drugs and sexual markets developing in, in this space called Kabul that um had all the benefits of big global development and all the evils of the sort of social ramifications of this. So very complex, but looking at comparative connections is I think essential to helping us understand. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin. JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.